in our study of Matthew's Gospel, and we're coming to really one of my favorite chapters, uh, chapter 13, which are the parables of the kingdom. I love Jesus' parables, and he tells seven parables that uh, describe the kingdom of God in its present state, the church age. And we'll talk about that as we go through each one in weeks to come. But today, the disciples ask Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? He tells the first parable, the parable of the four soils. And in the middle of it, they go, why are you speaking in parables? And Jesus answers the question. And he answers it in a way that may be surprising to you. All right, let me pray and uh, we'll take a look at this. Lord, as we open your word, today your word is about understanding your word. And we realize that we need your Holy Spirit to even hear and comprehend and understand. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give each of us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, we just got back from Disney. So let me, let me uh, ask you a question uh, that involves kind of being in a fairy tale. All right? Gentlemen, imagine um, you're not married yet. And you're looking for that special lady. Okay? And uh, you're in a kingdom. And the king announces the first man who can solve my riddle. You win the hand of the princess. And you get to marry her. Would you solve the riddle? Would you want to put forth the effort to solve the riddle? Now, my answer to that question would be, it kind of depends on the princess, right? <laughs> I mean, some princesses, you would, you would learn hieroglyphics and algebra, and you would do whatever you needed to do to get the answer to win the hand of the princess. Others, not so much, okay? So uh, you could sum that up by saying the effort is directly proportional to the prize, Right? The mental effort you put into the, the riddle, to solving the riddle, is directly proportional to the prize that you're going to win. Now, in Matthew 13, Jesus tells these seven parables about the kingdom. And the disciples come up to him and they ask, it says, the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Now, his answer is not what you might think. Right? Many people... Uh, if you were to ask them, why did Jesus speak in parables? You know what they would say? They would say, oh, to clarify his teaching. Jesus was the master teacher, and he spoke in parables, and people love stories and illustrations. He was the master teacher. Uh, that's why he used lots of stories, and we should use lots of stories and illustrations in our teaching to be like Jesus. That's not how he answers the question. The question, Jesus, why did you speak? Why do you speak in parables? He goes on to say in verse 11, and he answered them, to you, to you disciples, to you who have been following me, 
to you who are seeking after the truth and the kingdom of God, to you it has been, look at this word, given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, to, to those who are true seekers, I speak in parables to clarify, to teach. What about to the rest, though? But to them, the crowd, the crowd that's been following him around the Sea of Galilee for the miracles and for the free lunch, who has rejected him, who's bored with him, who in chapter 12 said he does miracles by the power of Satan, to them it has not been given. Stop right there. Why does he speak in parables? For two reasons. To clarify to true seekers and to cloud for the disinterested. Right? To cloud. Would you ever expect that? That he purposely speaks in parables to reveal and to conceal. You see, those who don't think the kingdom of God and pursuing God is that big of a prize, they hear the parables and they go, I'm not going to put forth the effort to think that through. I'm not going to go home after a sermon on Sunday and really contemplate the word of God and to try and figure out what the parable really means. Forget it. i got better things to do than waste my valuable brain cells I'm trying to figure out the meaning of these riddles that he speaks in. Yet, they will be held accountable for the truth that is revealed in those parables. Actually, he speaks in parables, yes, to reveal and to conceal and to harden the hearts of those who aren't pursuing him. Right? Let's take a look at this. Um, for to the one who has, sorry, he's speaking to the disciples, who have already been given truth, more will be given and he will have an abundance. Right? When he speaks in these parables, he's giving them more truth. And because they are pursuing and they are thinking about the things of God, they will understand more about the kingdom of God. They will be given more. But from the one who has not, right, who has not been pursuing, who does not receive truth, even what he has will be taken away. He doesn't care. It's going gonna, it's gonna to leave his mind. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because, now he's going to speak of the hard-hearted people, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Right? They're blind, deaf, and dumb spiritually. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, and now he's going to quote from Isaiah 6. Remember the vision Isaiah has in the temple where he sees the Lord high and lifted up and the angels are, are, are praising God, holy, 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 and the, te- the temple's filled with smoke and Isaiah is undone because of this vision of God and God sends him on a mission. Isaiah, you're going to preach to the people of Israel and they're not going to listen to you. Your job is to preach them into the ground and they will harden their hearts and reject me. Isn't that interesting? That the mark of a successful prophet back then was not how many people he drew, but in Isaiah's case, how many people 
rejected him? It's an interesting question. If God raised up a true prophet of God today and people rejected him and they wouldn't listen and the numbers shrank, how would we evaluate him? As a true prophet or as a failure? God gives Isaiah a, a, a task to preach until they reject him. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. I, anybody who will turn, anybody who will repent, I will heal them. I will forgive them. But as Isaiah preached, they didn't turn, and their hearts became harder and harder and harder. The more truth they were given, the harder their hearts became. And Jesus says, not only did that happen in Isaiah's day, but it's happening before your very eyes. I speak in parables to clarify the truth to the true seekers and to cloud the truth for the hard-hearted. But blessed are your eyes. I hope this is true of everyone in this room. Blessed are your eyes, for they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Maybe you've heard this phrase, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The same spiritual truth that saves some rebel, or repels others. Right? Jesus speaks in parables to do two things. Number one, to reveal spiritual truth. And number two, to conceal spiritual truth. So that's our sermon outline. Let's take a look at each one. Uh, Jesus speaks in parables, first of all, to reveal truth to some. Um, this, is, this is a hard concept for some people to, to really grasp a hold of. We all think that hearing the gospel and believing the gospel uh, is something we objectively do. We analyze the facts, we make a decision, and everybody uh, can or can't reject uh, a certain religion and religious truth totally on their own. It's like choosing, am I a Republican or a Democrat? Paper or plastic, right? Jesus or Buddhism. I will analyze the facts. I will come to my conclusion, and uh, I choose Jesus. And I did it totally on my own. What I want to do, I want to give you ten verses. We're going to do a little Bible study this morning. And I want you to understand that if you believe the gospel, if you believe in Christ, it is because that truth has been given to you. God has given you the ability to believe the truth. All right, 10 verses. First of all, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 2.14. Paul says, the natural person, all right, that's the, the non-Christian, all right, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Do you know most people, when they hear the gospel, when they hear what Christians believe, 
think it's stupid? God spoke and created the universe. And he made a man and a woman in a garden and there was a talking snake. And, and the world fell into rebellion, but God became a man. He was born and put in a manger. And he grew up and he was nailed to a cross and he was appeasing the wrath of God on that cross. And he was put in a tomb and then he rose from the dead and he floated up into heaven. And when you trust in him instead of yourself, Christ's death and his perfect life was given to you. It's a gift of salvation. And if you don't believe that, if you continue in your rebellion against God, you go to hell. But if you do believe in him, you are forgiven and you go to heaven. Most people hear that and they go, what? That is so stupid. How can you guys sing about that and really you know, spend all your time studying about that? That is so, so stupid. So it's folly to the person, to the natural person, for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Spiritual truth is spiritually understood. The way I like to, to uh, explain that is right now in this room, there are radio waves. Can you hear them? I can't hear them. You know why? I don't have a radio tuner. I don't have the equipment to hear them. The non-Christian doesn't get spiritual truth. Now, they can hear the words, but trying to put it together and understand it, you know, I've done this before, it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. Cross, resurrection, sin, hell, death. I can't wait to get out of here and get on to golfing, is what he's saying. Right? Some of you are saved and you are saying that too. But um, <laughs> spiritual truth is silliness to the non-believer. Right? Now, um, you say, well, does that mean that there are certain people out there, though, who are just good enough to seek after God on their own. No. Scripture makes it clear that man left to himself would never seek after God or after spiritual truth. Romans 3, 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous. So if you think, well, but I'm the one person who's righteous enough to go to heaven on my own and to understand spiritual truth. No. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. There are no spiritual seekers. Left to yourself in your natural state, nobody seeks after God. Now, God gives you a promise, though, in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You go, but what good is that if nobody's a seeker? The promise is that when you seek him, you will find him. But nobody gives a rip. Nobody would seek after God left of themselves. So how does anybody ever come to Christ? He seeks after you. Right? That's what Jesus says in John 6, 44. No one can come to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And that word draw, if you do a word study on it, it's a very powerful word. 
It's used of Paul in the book of Acts where they drag him out of the city or drag him around. And notice, while I believe the Holy Spirit is drawing everyone, that's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about drawing specific people because not everybody gets raised up on the last day. And I will raise him up on the last day. The people who are raised up are the ones who are drawn. This is a very specific, powerful drawing. So no one seeks after God, but God always gets his man or woman. Okay? Let me give you another verse out of John 6. Uh, after Jesus teaches this, the crowd is not too thrilled. And he goes on to say some other very hard things, such as, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can have nothing to do with me. And they do not like that. So at the end of the chapter, they're all ready to leave. And it says this, and he said, this is why... I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. You can't come to me. You have no desire to come to me unless it is granted from God the Father. People hate this. People do not like to be told that they are spiritually dead and they can't just choose truth. People get furious when you teach that the sovereignty of God controls salvation, not you. People get furious, if not at God, at the proclaimer of the truth. And they got furious, they left. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. People don't like to be told that they're in rebellion against God. But Jesus makes it clear. So then, verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? There's the door if you want to go. But they don't go. Why? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Sure, Peter didn't have it all figured out, but he knew one thing. Jesus was the Son of God, and he was sticking with him. He had been drawn by the Father to Now, um, let me give you a verse that you you may have glossed over in your reading. But this may may be a tough verse for you to struggle with. I struggled with it for three years in seminary. I dogged my theology professor on this whole sovereignty of God and responsibility of man thing. I think he was tired of me. Um, But this is one of these verses that you have to struggle with. Acts 13.48, Paul and Barnabas are in the city of Pisidian Antioch. First they go to the synagogue and preach to the Jews, and the Jews reject the gospel. So then they preach to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of of the Lord. Now look at this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I always like to point out, that does not say as many who believed were then appointed to eternal life. What's it say? As many who were appointed to eternal life, they're the ones who believed. Right? Now, um, why, why point this out? First of all, to produce worship in us. You know, it, it's not just 
that Jesus died for your sins. But even the desire to sit and listen to the gospel and believe it is a gift of God. If he didn't go after you, we would all be in hell. The fact that he woke us from our death, resurrected us from our death, and we believe is a gift from God, and it should produce humility and awe in the God who would do that for us. Now, you go, okay, so he just goes around zapping people? Is there nothing we do? Well, from his perspective, he's drawing us from our perspective. We're seeking him. But I think every one of you who has truly come to Christ, if we put a microphone in your hand, you would say, as I look back, it was him drawing me the whole time. But from our perspective, it's us pursuing him. You know, when we were in Matthew chapter 12, we looked at Jesus condemning the crowd for rejecting him, and he holds up the Queen of Sheba as an example of what he expects from humanity. Remember the Queen of Sheba? She lived all the way in the southern peninsula of of Arabia, and uh, she heard that Solomon, the king of Israel, was given divine revelation, and she traveled over land and sea, or I should say over sand and and land, uh, to hear him preach. And this is what Jesus says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What he's saying is, I am holding all of humanity accountable to be like her. She heard rumor of a rumor of a rumor that God had revealed truth in Israel, and she sought after it. And Jesus says, and I am here, the Son of God, preaching and doing miracles, and what are you doing? Yawning. She will rise up and condemn this generation. But what does all that say? That God expects us to seek after him. We don't, and he seeks after us, and then the response is, we do seek after him. Now, um, after salvation, though, once you get saved, the quest to seek after spiritual truth does not end. It should actually increase. That's why Jesus says in verse 12, For to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance. The, the day you're saved is not the end of your seeking. It's really the beginning of of more intense seeking. And what that tells you is that you can tell if you're saved or not. How can you tell? There's a desire to know God more and to understand spiritual truth more. If that desire is not there, then one of three things is happening. One, you're still dead. Right? You're a person who says, eh, I go to church and my wife makes me go. Or people would embarrass me if I didn't go. So I go. And I go to Bible study, but I don't get a whole lot out of it. And quite frankly, I don't read my Bible because I'm pretty bored with it. You're dead. You're spiritually dead. 
You need to have the terror of God in you and realize that you need spiritual life because the mark of spiritual life is a desire to seek after him and to understand his truth more. So one, one reason why you may not seek after spiritual truth is you're dead. Let me give you a second one. You're dull. Okay? Now that's not my word. In Hebrews 5... The writer to the Hebrews says this, About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, you look that word up in the Greek, it's nothros. It means dull, lazy, stupid, or slothful. What he's doing is he's saying, I want to teach you more, but you're lazy. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and by the way, there are formal teachers who have the gift of teaching and preaching and so forth, but every one of us is a teacher in some way, whether you're teaching your children or you're just in a Bible study uh, interacting over the Word, all of us are to be teachers to some degree. For by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid This should be a spanking to some of us. Have we become dull? Have we grown lazy in our pursuing of truth? Put down the Sports Illustrated, turn off the TV, and get into the Word of God. Fall's coming up when we kind of re-up our our Bible studies. You know, uh, there's no better way to be accountable to study than to be in a Bible study where you have to show up prepared. So uh, you could be spiritually dead, you could be spiritually dull, or you could just simply be spiritually distracted. You know what I found? That it is possible for me, from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, to have some form of media pumping into my my brain. I don't know about you, I I go to the bathroom, we have a, a radio in there, I always like to hear what's going on in the world, I turn on the talk radio. Then I go downstairs and make my coffee, turn on the radio. Go down to my office. There's my computer, which I have radio and talk shows and the Internet. And then when I go up for my run, my my limp, um, I have my iPod and I listen to to music or sermons. Then I get in my car and I turn on the radio. Who's on? My wife talking on Moody, right? (laughs) Can't get away from her. No. uh, it is possible, or the TV, it is possible to have media pumping into your brain 24-7. Um, look at what Paul writes to Timothy. He gives him three truths about what it means to be a pastor. He talks about being an athlete, a farmer, and a soldier. And he doesn't really spell it out for him, but he says this. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Timothy, I'm not going to lay it right out there. I'm going to give you three illustrations. And for you to really get it, you need to ponder. What does a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer have to do with being a good pastor? You need to think about that. You don't get that in our our media world today. If it's not spelled out, we don't ponder that. Look at what uh, 
what the psalmist writes. Psalm 1 is the introduction to the book of Psalms. And it begins with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The the blessed man is the man who makes time to read the Word, turns off the radio, turns off the iPod, turns off the TV, and thinks about it. So some of us may be dead, some of us may be dull, some of us may be distracted. But spiritual truth is not injected into your brain. You have to pursue it. You have to think about it. You have to meditate on it. And then it transforms. But it's all under the umbrella of the fact that it is given to you by God. So why does he speak in, in parables? One, to reveal truth. Now let me cover these a little quicker. Parables also conceal truth to others. Now, at this point, some of you may say, well, I saw all those verses on predestination and everything. I guess it's just, you know, either God chooses me or not. It's kind of up to him. I'm not really accountable to do anything. Either he zaps me or not. So I'll just sit here waiting for him to zap me. Ho, ho, ho. Au contraire, Pierre. Right? Um i got to quote Spurgeon. No Piper today, but we get Spurgeon. I love this quote from Spurgeon. This quote actually changed my life. Right? Spurgeon says this. I believe in predestination, yea, even in its very jots and tittles. I believe that the path of a single grain of dust in the March wind, is ordained and settled by a decree which cannot be violated, that every word and thought of a man, did you get that? Every word and every thought of a man, every flittering of a sparrow's wing, every flight of a fly, that everything, in fact, is foreknown and foreordained. Do you believe that? I do. I believe that everything is foreordained by God. But, 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 I do equally believe in the free agency of man. That man acts as he wills, especially in moral operations. Choosing the evil with a will that is unbiased by anything that comes from God. Do you believe that? I believe that with all my heart. That you who reject God are doing it volitionally. You can't say, well, he didn't choose me. You are rejecting him of your own will. Choosing the right. Now he's talking about the Christian. Choosing the right, too, with the perfect freedom, though sacredly guarded or guided and led by the Holy Spirit. I believe that man is as accountable as if there were no destiny whatsoever. Ever. You can't on judgment day shake your fist at God and say, well, you decreed it this way. 
You are accountable for your sin and your rejection and your choices. You go, well, how can these fit together? I don't understand. I hope you don't understand. How can an infinite God make his uh, truth understandable to finite creatures? So what does Spurgeon say? Where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me, since I have given up my mind to believing them both. In fact, the person who says, well, God decrees everything. There's this whole predestination thing. I don't believe, and it's his fault, is awfully close to the guy in Romans 9 that Paul argues with. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Paul has just talked about the fact that uh, he hardens some and he chooses others. He has mercy on some and he rejects others. And uh, he says some objector will say, well, then why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who can resist God's will if it's all predestined? And look at Paul's answer to the smart aleck. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Don't you dare shake your fist at God and blame your sin and your unbelief on his decree. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Now, why is the unbeliever accountable for his unbelief? Because, listen to this, Our spiritual deadness is our fault. Our spiritual blindness is our fault. Our spiritual deafness is our fault. You go, well, how how can that be? Let me explain it this way. Have you ever tried to work with somebody who's involved in an affair? And you go to that person, let's say it's a man, and you go... What are you doing? You're going to destroy your family and your kids and your life. What are you doing? Now, he can hear you, and technically he can walk away from the affair. But I've talked with some guys who say, I can't. I can't leave. Why? Because their love for their sin has made them dead. Your love for your sin, unbeliever, has made you dead, and you are accountable for it. Don't play the part of the armchair theologian who's going to blame God. You are accountable for your love of sin that deadens your hearing and blinds your eyes and dulls your heart. You are accountable for your unbelief, which is why Jesus can say, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. The fact that she can condemn unbelief and God can hold unbelievers accountable proves that we're responsible for our own spiritual deadness. Now, what we see here with the parables, theologians call it judicial hardening, where God hardens the heart of unbelievers. How? 
By injecting hardness into the heart? No, by giving them more truth. Again, the same truth that some, some people hear and produces belief in them, that same truth actually hardens other people. Remember in the Old Testament, Pharaoh. It says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and it says God hardened his heart. Now, which one is it? That's not a contradiction. It's, God hardened Pharaoh's heart by giving him more and more truth. Every plague revealed the glory and the power of God, and rather than Pharaoh embracing it, he hardened his heart. Right? Truth hardened his heart. Now, here's the point. You never stand still spiritually. You are either ascending and growing or descending and hardening. There is no standing still. Now, there comes a point even where it gets worse. This judicial hardening where God not only sends you truth and you harden your heart, but look at this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12. The coming of the lawless one, speaking of the end-time Antichrist, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So here, they've refused to love the truth and so be saved. They're accountable. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned. Some of you need to broaden your concept of who God is. That He hands rejectors over to liars. And they buy into... You know, people say... How come there are all these crazy theologies coming out today and books by people that are denying the truth and so many people are buying into them? I think that might tell you what stage we're in in the end times. Why doesn't God stop it? Maybe it's called judicial hardening where people reject, 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 and then, oh, let's put a heresy book out there, and everybody loves it. Okay. Now, let me end, though, on a note of hope. Is there any good news? By the way, this is the difference between topical preaching and expository preaching. Expository preaching says we're going to preach the text. The text says, why do you preach in parables? Well, to give truth to some and to harden others. You don't like that, then go find a church where they'll tell you what you want to hear. I preach the text. Okay? If you can't handle it, that might say something about your heart. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. I think even passages that talk about judicial hardening are acts of mercy. I think Jesus still wants the person who's in their unbelief to hear about this and be terrified and say, oh, I hope I am not on that path of final hardening. Is there any hope for me? And the answer is yes. If there's even a spark of fear that says, can I still be saved? The answer is yes. 
for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Pharisee and the tax collector go to the temple. The Pharisee's all arrogant, praying about how wonderful he is. And the tax collector, who knows he's a sinner, he's rejected God, he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all it takes for a sinner to realize I've rejected God. Is there hope for me? Yes, Christ died even for you. It's called repentance. When you turn from your sin and you cast yourself on the mercy of God and you trust in Him. Jesus died for you too. Let's pray. Now, if that describes you and you say, would He have mercy on me? The answer is yes. Cry out to Him and just say, have mercy on me. I repent of my running from you and my disbelief and my boredom of you. My hardness of heart. And I turn to you and I ask you to change my heart. I trust in you. And he receives you. His death on the cross covers you. He adopts you into the kingdom. He adopts you as a child. And all the glory goes to him. Amen.